welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. My co-host Rick Banks is taking this weekend off to take his son Harlan to Arizona for a basketball tournament. Rick will be back joining us next week. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. The conference call is live and unedited. Our experts are given only six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be informative, provocative, and entertaining. What happens next is designed to be politically neutral, so listeners can draw their own conclusions. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This week's topic is business and technology disruption accelerated by COVID. I am joined in this discussion with this week's special co-host, Mitch Feynman. Many of our listeners know Mitch from his days at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was my fraternity brother. Since graduating with me in 1987, Mitch has been quite busy. Mitch worked for the past 30 years at the intersection of media and technology. He helped Disney's television division launch the first websites for abcnews.com, the Oscars, and the Oprah Winfrey Show. Mitch managed the American Idol text message voting initiative for Fox. After working for YouTube, Mitch currently works for an artificial intelligence startup to help, to help entertainment companies analyze video programming and games for better ad placement. Our first speaker today is Greg Wolf, who is the director of classical studies at the University of London. Greg is going to discuss his latest book entitled The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History. I've asked Greg to discuss three topics. One, why were some ancient cities more resilient to disasters, and why did so many of the ancient cities disappear? Second, why were the growth of cities so dependent on their networks with the countryside and other urban areas? And third, what was the role of epidemics and other natural catastrophes for de-urbanization in the ancient world? This last question is particularly relevant today, as the current frantic pace of global urbanization seems likely to take a pause. Our second speaker is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove from the Park Avenue Synagogue in New York City. Elliot will be speaking about how COVID has encouraged virtual services, and this new approach will likely change religious engagement. Many congregants have responded very positively to virtual religious services, and the clergy are hopeful that this will increase attendance and interest in religious interaction. I have asked Elliot to speak about how this new virtual world will affect the Jewish community. After Elliot speaks, we will have our first question and answer session with Greg and Elliot. Our third speaker is Gordon Ho. He is the former chief marketing officer at Princess Cruise Lines, and Gordon is currently the founder of an entrepreneurial venture called Expertainment.com. I've asked Gordon to speak about how the cruise industry can adjust to the epidemic and regain the public trust so pastors can feel safe to begin cruising again. Personally, I have not taken a cruise, so I've asked Gordon to explain the appeal of the cruise vacation. Our fourth speaker is Aaron Luber, who runs virtual and augmented reality at Google. Aaron will describe how COVID has accelerated the use of these new technologies. Aaron will first explain what virtual reality means, because it isn't simply wearing a headset and watching sharks swim by anymore. I then want Aaron to tell about how the virtual reality will impact business. I'm especially interested in beauty, furniture and interior design, as well as car buying. The final topic that I want Aaron to touch on is how to improve the Zoom experience. COVID has encouraged mass adoption of Zoom and other 
video technologies. In fact, what happens next is probably the sole exception to this phenomenon, as I have steadfastly refused to move away from the audio-only conference call. The visual screen is good, but it is still awkward. Real face-to-face communication allows for more empathy, appreciation of nonverbal cues, and better understanding. And now here comes virtual reality to the rescue. Aaron will discuss recent advancements in virtual and augmented reality that will improve visual communication. After Aaron speaks, we'll have our second question and answer session with Gordon and Aaron. Then what happens next pivots to sports. Our next speaker is Simon Johnson, who is the chair of the UK Rugby Football League. I've asked Simon to speak about the rule changes that the Rugby Football League has made to, to the game due to the risks of COVID contagion. I want to learn from Simon about how these rule changes have affected the game and what the response has been from rugby fans. Our next speaker after Simon is Larry Berg. Larry attended Penn with me, and he is now the senior partner at the private equity firm Apollo, where he focuses on education. Larry is the chairman of McGraw-Hill Education. Larry is also the lead managing owner of the Los Angeles Football Club, which is a professional soccer team. I've asked Larry to tell us about how American soccer has adapted during COVID and what it has done to the economics of the league. I'm also interested in learning about how American soccer has done compared to its competitors in Europe who are dealing with a lack of fan attendance as well. Our final speaker today is Dan Arlo, who is the president and CEO of Vetness, which is a startup in the sports betting business, which is owned by my good friend Josh Berkowitz. I've asked Dan to speak about why COVID has resulted in an explosion in interest in sports betting. I want to know why this is sports betting's big moment and how technology from other businesses can be applied to this industry. I'm very happy that live sports has reappeared. Unfortunately, without a live audience, fan engagement is down. I want to hear about how sports betting can re-engage fans and enhance the viewer experience. All right, let's get started. I'm now going to turn the call over to my co-host, Mitch Feynman, who will make some opening remarks. Go ahead, Mitch. Thanks, Larry. As you mentioned, I spent my career launching products and creating markets based on new technologies, such as mobile devices or connected TVs. Timing is often a critical consideration. That is, consumers have to be ready, willing, and able to consider new ways of doing things. And often, this adoption curve is hardest of all to predict. Even after all these years, I'm frequently astonished how quickly some solutions are embraced while others seem to take forever or never get off the ground. COVID has presented a unique set of circumstances that has forced people to change the way they do things quickly and dramatically. The most famous technology of the COVID era, of course, is Zoom, which in fact is not new, but most of us who didn't use it before adopted it to work or attend school from home and to keep in touch with friends and family we couldn't see in person anymore. Despite complaints of Zoom fatigue, I think most of us are pretty delighted with these video chat systems, and we will continue to use them even after the pandemic subsides. Although, as Larry mentioned, my longtime colleague, Aaron Luber from Google, will tell us shortly how they might change and greatly improve. What's especially interesting to me about today's topic is how all aspects, all aspects of life, including on this audio cast today, travel, religious services, and sports, will likely be permanently impacted by this change in human behavior as we discover 
that we like not commuting to work every day or, with apologies to Rabbi Cosgrove, putting on a suit for Yom Kippur services. So let's get started. All right, great. Thank you, Mitch. All right, our first speaker is Greg Wolf. Uh, Greg is the Director of Classical Studies and a professor at the University of London. Um, he's going to be discussing his recent book, The Life and Death of Ancient C Cities, A Natural History. Greg, take it away. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening to those of us in Europe. I'm an archaeologist and a historian of the Roman world, and I work with data from an enormously long time range. So one of the joys of writing that book was I was looking at uh, 6,000 years of human history, and particularly interested in the ancient world, the Mediterranean world, the last 3,000 years or so. Cities collapse for all sorts of reasons. So volcanoes under them, earthquakes and so on, but actually most of them didn't. And one of the really startling features that I discovered working on this project uh, was how long individual cities lasted, that cities, if they were founded by, if they survived by 500 BC, most of them are still there a thousand years later. In fact, most of them are still there today. And the number of new cities that appeared in the Mediterranean basin after 500 is very small indeed. Every city you can imagine um, has some kind of Roman, Greek, and often pre-Greek roots. So one of the first things that I, I noticed was that ancient cities do have an extraordinary resilience. And resilience is, I think, a key term for us, one that's really important today. Resilience to uh, social, biological scientists means the ability to withstand two kinds of threat. Chronic threats like um, famine, disease, and so on, and then acute threats of disasters, um, the stock market crash, um, a volcano explodes, something like that. And ancient cities seem to be pretty resilient in both. Against acute ones, the ones that were most common and most survivable when cities were destroyed by other humans, so sacks, um, sieges, and things like that. And many city, famous cities, Corinth, Carthage, um, Thebes among them were completely destroyed but within a hundred years or so uh, had regenerated themselves or rather been regenerated been rebuilt deliberately and one reason for this is that the cities that were around in 500 BC were they were a subset of all the places where people had tried to create cities in the preceding 200 years or so and essentially if you're still there by 500 uh, it shows that you have a city that is well locked into local niches and connections. Ancient cities tended to be very small, and that's part of their secret of their success. Almost all of them had less than 10,000 people. In fact, even in the time of the Roman Empire, when there's more cities than ever before, there were about 2,000 cities and about 1,500 of them were under 5,000 people. And then alongside these micro-cities, things that we would almost think of as villages, you get a small number, a very small number, less than 10, enormous cities like Rome and Alexandria and Carthage and Istanbul and so on, which are almost all the products of empires. One of the things that makes these cities um, able to withstand uh, environmental crises and so on is if you're really small, um, you're able to uh, feed yourself from your immediate surroundings. Uh, a food crisis for 4,000 people, where you can store a year's harvest to deal with that. A food crisis for 100,000 people, that's another thing altogether. The other thing that helped them build resilience was that these cities 
but none of them so narrowly focused that they depend on one kind of economic activity. We know today the risks of putting all your eggs in one basket of only doing manufacturing or only being a governmental centre because of a shift of government or a change in the market leads to massive unemployment. And see, and there are a few ancient cities that did experience something like that. Imperial capitals, the emperor moves somewhere else, and suddenly the city shrinks when all that money starts being spent around there. But most ancient cities were locked into all sorts of interconnected activity into trade, into agriculture, into manufacturing. Because they were very largely self-sufficient, they did a bit of everything. And because they weren't completely self-sufficient, they were tied into networks of exchange. So when there was a disaster, uh, they could expect some help or some sustenance from around the corner. The last thing Larry mentioned was pandemics. Pandemics come into the category of of um, acute rather than chronic stress. Chronic stress is endemic, disease, it's famine, it's undernutrition. It's there all the time. Pandemics are acute. They appear rapidly and burn themselves out fairly quickly. There are at least three major ones and probably a whole series of other minor ones in the ancient world. Smallpox probably made its first appearance in the 2nd century, the Black Death in the 6th century. And these diseases spread very rapidly between the big port cities because that's where those are the cities that are well connected and they're usually the larger cities. So when we hear of disasters, it's in places like Athens and Constantinople where there are massive casualties. How do people survive? Well, some attempted to literally displace themselves. There's a lovely story of an emperor and his brother riding like crazy down the spine of Italy to escape a plague rushing after them. Uh, But in most cases... um, population simply dropped for a little while and then regenerated later because one of the things that the history of pandemics tells us is that sometimes they stimulate economies as well as damage them. Sometimes they remove the idle mouths or they force people to adopt change rapidly that they were thinking of already, rather like Zoom, if you like. And so pandemics did sweep backwards and forwards across the ancient world and, and backwards and forwards across the whole of the Eurasian continent, but they probably didn't finish Rome off, and they probably didn't finish anyone off. They, they simply were like really bad weather, like the volcanic eruptions disrupting the climate, so you have a couple of bad years. Um, and in that case, the ancient world was able to then go back to this extremely low-level, small-scale self-sufficiency, helping each other and helping each other's neighbours. Thank you for your attention. Great, thank you. Okay, um, our next speaker is Elliot Cosgrove. Uh, Elliot is the head rabbi at Park Avenue Synagogue in New York City. Go ahead, Rabbi. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Mitch. And it's great to be on the heels of uh, Professor Wolf. So, look, this is a moment where I'm just a few days after the high holidays. On the one hand, public assembly is severely curtailed. Uh, the very notion of a house of worship as being a gathering place is, is, is limited. At the same time, uh, our high holiday services have experienced uh, exponential growth. Uh, tens of thousands of, of people from not just our community, not just around the nation, but around the globe. Uh, we can actually track that through analytics of where people are checking in. Uh, as well as our day-to-day classes and our programming as a synagogue, uh, a virtual campus has been created. So on the one hand, 
this is uh, a moment of extraordinary challenge. Uh, on the other hand, it is a moment of extraordinary opportunity. Uh, I'm heartened by, by remembering, and here Professor Wolf's com comments set the stage, that, um, that there have been moments of disruption before. And certainly as a Jewish community, uh, the, you know, one could actually trace back to Genesis chapter 12, the very founding of, of our faith with Abraham and Sarah, that happened in response to famine when they were told to go from point A to point B to a land that God would show them. Uh, in ancient Israel, uh, ancient Israel's religion was transformed following uh, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai into um, a desert tabernacle which eventually found itself to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Romans destroyed that temple in the year 70, uh, and uh, what biblical Israel understood as their religion, a temple-based religion, was totally reinvented to rabbinic Judaism, which is still practiced today. When the Jews were expelled from Spain, in 1492, that was a moment of the efflorescence of Jewish mysticism, uh, what we know as Kabbalah today. Uh, the, the rise of, uh, for your, your Jewish listeners, Larry, of, of, of Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, all the denominations that we still know today, that was in response to uh, the Enlightenment and Emancipation and modernity, uh, for that matter, uh, for American Jews. Uh, what we know as uh, JCCs, um, one of the great visionaries of American Judaism, a rabbi, Mordechai Kaplan, who thought of creating a, a, a shul, a synagogue with a pool and a school, which is very much modeled after the Protestant model of, of, of communal formation. That is a total upheaval from the old Eastern and Central European model of the Yiddish word as a shtibel, a small little prayer house. Uh, and that is American Judaism as we know it today, but it was an American Judaism that was wrought by way of, of, of uh, um, migration, not just geographical, but also cultural, linguistic, and otherwise uh, at the turn of the century um, and, and beyond. So, so each one of these moments, and I can give more, reflect the time when Jews were faced with unprecedented circumstances. They honestly assess their situation. They recognize that um, their commitment to the Jewish past demanded bold thinking about the future, and they were able to, to appropriate the best ideas of the day, and, and in many cases, break an egg or two in order to make an omelet. And, and I think this is, it's deeply important at this moment to recognize that all of these moments of transformation, they happened in times of physical and oftentimes spiritual deprivation. So by that criteria, um, our moment absolutely is a moment of disruption along the lines of the ones I'm mentioning. If you think about what a synagogue or a church is, um, or a mosque, it, it, you know, uh, I define it by way of three uh, missions. Number one is a house of worship. Number two is a house of learning. And number three is a house of community. Each one of these 
have been upended. So as a house of worship, we can't um, presently assemble in public prayer. Everything has shifted to an online experience. As an educational institution, no different than any school, um, uh, Jewish, public, private, or otherwise, all of our modalities of education uh, have have shifted uh, right now. And, and if you think about the, the job of a good synagogue or, or church, it should be uh, a place to share life's joys and sorrows, to observe life cycle events, funerals, weddings, baby namings, and otherwise, and to raise uh, families together, uh, none of which is happening in, in conventional ways. The, the thing about this moment and in and, and your opening remarks, I think, Mitch, you made note of this, right? Some of these uh, changes uh, have been needed for a long time. Prior to COVID, uh, the, the, the need for disruptive innovation within the Jewish community has, has been a necessary conversation. Membership habits, um, not just of Jews, but of all church-going individuals has, has changed uh, over over the years, synagogues are mainline uh, churches facing existential questions about their financial models long before COVID. Um, the question of content, right? We're all getting our our information, whether it's Spotify or media or Netflix, right? Why should religious content function any differently uh, than um, than music and film and otherwise? Uh, that has um, only been accelerated right now, and but it preceded this moment. And the nature of Jewish identity itself, uh, the, the blurred lines amongst uh, Jews and non-Jews, community formation, right? We want to be as inclusive as possible, but at the same time, if a community has no boundaries, then at what point does it stop being a community? These are questions that were there before COVID, um, just the difference being that right now, uh, the toothpaste is out of the tube, meaning hopefully vaccine and God willing will go back um, uh, into our houses of worship, but some things, some questions are, are out of the box. And, and I'll just give you, give you a couple sort of headlines that maybe we can discuss during Q&A. Uh, number one, um, membership, what does it actually mean to be a member of, of a synagogue or, or church or mosque. We had tens of thousands of people engaging on the high holidays, um, but what, what does it mean to be an online, a virtual member of a community? What's the financial model of that? If you're a dues-paying member, what are your expectations of your local community? But if you're a virtual member by way of, I don't know, you're living in Baltimore, what is um, your set of expectations uh, in terms of the goods and services that a synagogue provides if you're not local. And as a synagogue that has the high-class problems of Park Avenue Synagogue, what does it mean not to become the Walmart of synagogues? I want small synagogues to thrive, um, and they're not resourced in the same way. Number two is content. Uh, what, are, um, what, what does a virtual campus look like? Um, how can synagogues adapt sort of a Pelotonized Jewish content? Are there opportunities that if we don't know how to say a certain prayer, can the synagogue do that virtually 
and and create an educational model. Just the other day, I was speaking to a family about a tutor for their bar bat mitzvah. Now all that's happening online. It's a small example, but if it's it's an interesting one because now I don't need that well-meaning uh, tutor to be local. They could be in Israel, and I could be tutoring my kid um, uh, internationally right now. Uh, so what changes? What stays the same? And then the final category, um, and here I want to speak sort of with both intense modesty but also cautious confidence, which are the identity issues that are forming at this moment. Um, as, as a spiritual leader, I think at this eight-month moment or whatever month we're in, I think we are just now acclimating um, to the transformations of identity and community formation. I see in young people, you know, dating habits um, transformed, developmental questions amongst teenagers, teenagers who at the very moment that they're meant to individuate, um, they're stuck at home with their parents. We don't even know um, the long-term ramifications of this moment on, the, on our spiritual selves, um, how we're going to uh, get married and, 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 and create identities uh, and families and lives of meaning. And so I, I, I think we're still in it. Uh, you know, I'm reminded that the, the heyday of, of post-Holocaust theology, it didn't happen until 10 to 15 years after the Holocaust itself. It might take a while for us to formulate the questions of this moment. But my, my cautious optimism is that I do think as long as human beings are human, we're going to be social. I'm putting my bets on the idea that people want community. Um, we will seek community. We will ask questions of ultimate meaning. Um, and people, no matter what, are going to seek to make their lives sacred. Um, those questions aren't going anywhere, but how we respond to those questions, um, that needs to evolve. So thank you very much. Thank you, Elliot. Wow, there's a lot of that one to unpack. Um, so we're now in the Q&A session for Elliot and Greg. I'll start with you, Elliot. Um, you know, I want to just get to maybe start with the economics of synagogues. You started with due paying and, and expectations. Um, will this throw a huge wrench in how synagogues fund themselves? I mean, historically, um, payments and dues were required to get to high holy day services. And if high holy day services are free virtually, um, what does this mean particularly for reform and conservative Judaism where that is the main meal ticket? Yeah, well, the preliminary news right now for Park Avenue Synagogue is very positive. I, I think people, you know, we're a legacy institution. People are committed to the synagogue and people, uh, I can on a preliminary level say that uh, they understand that this is an unprecedented moment and even if their their tuchus is not in their seat on the high holidays, people get it. That it that that um, and and that's actually been incredibly affirming. But I think the existential question you're asking is is much bigger, which is um, what uh, you know are there different models that recommend themselves that aren't contingent just on getting my high holiday ticket? Um, I think that um, and here. Uh, I, th I think the, the business model um, needs to both acknowledge 
you know, the history of it, the economics of it, um, of how a synagogue funds itself in, in very conventional ways, membership, bar mitzvahs, annual campaigns, and otherwise, but realize that the future um, might be um, more of, I mean, I, I don't even know the words I'm using, but like a, a Spotify kind of subscription-based model um, and figuring out a way to balance the two um, and affirm both of them. Uh, is that, is that yeah, helpful? I'm, I'm really not worried about Park Avenue Synagogue. I'm more worried about, you know, the synagogue in, in a, not in a center city, um, which we, which, whose economics already was under a lot of stress. And you are, or either Central or Park Avenue or whatever the superstar synagogues are going to do, are going to offer a spectacular product, a product that is um, highly emotive, um, just high quality, just really well done. And I, I just kind of imagine sort of like the Michael Jordan effect where all the eyes go to Michael and, you know, nobody watches um, you know, the, the second tier or third tier teams. Um, and that puts a much greater stress on those synagogues that don't either can't afford or can't produce this fantastic product. How do you think about winners and losers in your, in yeah. your sphere? Look, I, I think, uh, okay. So again, these issues of sort of the, the long-term sustainability of the synagogue in deep Long Island or, or suburban Pittsburgh or whatever, they were there before COVID. Uh, and this is, is accelerating those questions. I'm deeply worried. I'm deeply worried. Uh, and, you know, both the migratory patterns, the demographics of Jews, and whether it can... So I, uh, the, the, the honest answer is I'm worried. Um, I think this is a time where the umbrella organizations of American Jewry need to pivot and resource themselves appropriately to create the value proposition of the local synagogue. So we had a book event, uh, I, I don't even remember what it was, with a, a, an author that we, Park Avenue Synagogue, were able to host virtually and make it happen. But what we did at that moment, by way of a partnership uh, model, is we um, partnered with about half a dozen other small synagogues, and we were able to create a way that their institutions were able to have fancy author X participate uh -huh. in that. So the local community was served. Not everyone had to pay you know, the, the, the fee for whatever it was, and all ships rose at that moment. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that takes creativity. I think that takes people not being so turf oriented. And I think that means that, uh, you know, uh, that, that legacy institutions need to be able to work together in the sandbox together for the greater good. Um, Larry, this is Simon Johnson. I wonder if uh, I can ask a question of Professor Wolf. Go, um, go ahead. Uh, Professor, I, I think what you've tried to say here is that the um, demise of ancient cities um, and the fact that they, you know, the, w what made them live or die should be a, a message to say that our cities will survive. But I wonder if there is a, a historical um, analysis similar to what I think we've got at the moment, because old cities used to have 
a center of economic activity, either the forum or the market or something like that. They didn't really have a huge amount of activity around the suburbs. And I think what's happened here with um, COVID, with so much working from home, particularly in the United Kingdom, is that suddenly there is a, a potential for the resurgence of suburbs and a move away from economic activity around a, a center, which may have which may result in cities sort of disintegrating from the middle outwards. I just wonder if there's any sort of historical parallel to when we've in, encountered something like that. That's a really interesting question, Simon. It's, it was something we all looked for very hard when we first started to think about ancient cities in spatial terms. But what seems to happen is there really aren't sort of those differences between residential and working areas, in part because they're so small, you can walk across Pompeii in 20 minutes if you, you know, with a reasonable pace, uh, and partly because um, people just they seem to live, you get the rich living everywhere, and among them their slaves, and around their houses are retail shops and so on. So you don't get these kind of areas like we have of. of of, of suburbs where people live, but they don't work and they're not terribly productive areas. The only what, what the Romans meant by suburb was uh, an area right out at the edge of the city where you put uh, businesses like um, Fulling, which which smells horrible, leather working, um, or where the dead are buried and so on. So the, the small scale of their cities meant they didn't have quite that kind of di- that, that kind of dynamic. And maybe we will go back to something more like an ancient city version where activities are more evenly distributed and yeah, one of the things that made our, our current cities be what made it possible for them to grow to the size they are is that you can move people such vast distances so quickly but if you think about the victorians even victorian london if you wanted to have somebody uh, to be your servant in your house uh, they had to live in your house because in without modern transport without without buses before trains and buses and all and um uh, mechanised transport, uh, you couldn't have a workforce that lived a long way away because they simply couldn't get in. So uh, we live in this really rather bizarre world where we have sort of you know, zoned our cities enormously and um, the ancient world was much less zoned and I suppose it's possible that, that future cities will be much less zoned for exactly the reason you say. Just following up on Simon's point about de-urbanisation, um, what when certain cities did die or became much smaller, what was the real causality for that? Was it environmental? Was it disease? Use Rome as a proxy. Why did Rome go from being this enormous city to, to, to returning to being a small town? Um, what, what was the fundamental aspect of de-urbanization? What, what, I should maybe there are two parts. What caused the initial rapid rise of urbanization in some communities? And then what caused that rapid de-urbanization for an extended period of time? Yeah, um, there were several things that, that threatened cities. I mean, a small number of cities uh, disappeared because um, they were based on the sea and then rivers get silted up, so you know, this is a familiar pattern today, or uh, because of some kind of natural disaster. Uh, but not very many, actually. Um, and what's much more common is you've got the same sort of network of sort of, you know, one to 2,000 cities, um, but that the shape of that network changes. Nodes that have been very important become quite small, and nodes that were quite small become quite big. So if you sort of imagine looking out at this sort of map of the ancient world with dots all over cities, uh, you'd see the lights come on and dim in individual centres. And what, what affects that 
is the much bigger frameworks that they're involved in. So uh, during the third century, there were uh, um, several decades of of wars on the Roman northern frontier, and, and the emperors ended up spending most of their time there. And there's a whole string of cities where, which were temporary re- Roman capitals. It starts with York, and then um, Trier in Germany, and a few in what's now sort of Austria-Hungary, then Istanbul, um, places in Syria, Alexandria. While the emperors were there, they become centres of spending, and people have to connect to them. And then when emperors move away... Uh, they revert, they go back to being relatively small market towns which are mostly dealing with their local things. So urbanisation, de-urbanisation happens within this network, cities growing and cities shrinking. Um, what, what leads to the original rise, I mean, I think it's something as simple as population increase, that the population of the ancient world more or less quadruples from the early Iron Age to the Roman period. And as populations grow, because they have no sources of energy really apart from human animal labour, as the population grows, the amount of energy in the system grows, which means you're more productive, and this produces more of a surplus. And once you've got a surplus, you can then build with it, and you can support more people and not produce it themselves. Um, and that, that, I suspect, is, is, is the underlying push towards urbanism. And what leads to decrease at the end is that the state collapses. The uh, the imperial state fragments. There's first two empires, then there's one empire and half a dozen kingdoms, then there's um, dozens of areas. And, and by late, by the end of the Roman Empire, um, uh, there are all these local circumscriptions and none of them are able to sustain uh, a capital the size of Rome or Constantinople on their own. How do you think Greg, of... Good, um, Elliot, oh. you got it. No, it's Elliot, I just wanted to uh, ask a, an obvious question from a rabbi's perspective. As you're tracing, you know, when I think of a city, I think of it political institutions, cultural institutions, economic institutions, and of course, religious institutions. To what degree in your studies are religious institutions, their health, a bellwether of of the health of an uh, of a city or a, a civilization, meaning uh, in moments of crisis, can can you measure this um, in any way the, to the degree to which people turn away or to uh, religion religion in times of crisis? Yes, you can look at where the big sanctuaries are, and uh, unsurprisingly, really big cities had to have really big temples and big sanctuaries, and others didn't. Um, and there are periods where um, more people come seeking oracles. And some of these oracles are about, um, uh, about disease and fear and, and, and uncertainty. So there's a, certainly a sense that, say, in the 2nd, 3rd centuries AD, when uh, political military situation is a bit more worried, a bit more disease about, we see a bit more of that. But, but what really, there are a small number of cities that become enormously successful because they they're more or less run by their by their by their um by their sanctuaries so ephesus is enormously important because it's got the great temple of artemis diana of the ephesians in 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 acts and um in the fourth century after constantine um converts to christianity almost immediately huge amounts of building starts in jerusalem and so in the in the you know, jerusalem after at the destruction of the Second Temple, in economic terms, 
does sort of okay. We've got maps that show buildings, and of course you've got the amazing archaeology, uh, but it's not really very prominent in political sense. And then suddenly, after after it becomes important because the emperor is now Christian, vast amounts of spending takes place. Then this goes on into um, into the uh, into the, the Byzantine period, and also it becomes a target. Now Persian armies, which would in the past have just raided major cities like Antioch, taking Jerusalem on the way. So having a major religious centre uh, can reflect your 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 status, but um, it can also sort of attract attract different kinds of disaster. What about, um, Greg, when you think about current city declines, and I'm thinking of American cities that have declined, like Baltimore and Detroit, even my city of Chicago um, is a, a million people less than its its high water mark. Yeah. What what? How do you think about um, the decline of certain American cities um, in comparison with you know I'll call it the big growers, you know, Miami, Houston, Los yeah. Angeles. Although I mean, there was an age when Chicago was a big grower, wasn't it? it grew to phenomenal. For sure, it was the fastest city to a million. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I mean, one way to think, about, I suppose, is that in the modern world, uh, the systems, the networks of exchange and industry and commerce that that cities are they organize there's just much more power going through them it's sort of turned up from two watts to 100 watts and so cities can zoom up and zoom down that much more quickly but i mean the other thing i think to think about is the point i made about resilience earlier that resilient cities do lots of things and they they have lots of strands to them so uh, Nowadays, they are tourist centres and cultural centres and educational centres and they're places where people do research and design and they're governmental hubs and things like that. And the city that does all of these things is able to, to re-gear a little bit to change circumstances. But a city like Detroit, and I mean, I can think of examples over here, just I, I'm ringing you from Scotland now, and, and just north of me is Dundee, which had several colossal collapses because it invested enormously in whaling and then we stopped catching whales or in jute production and then the production of jute moved back to India and every time one of these big industries that employed huge proportion of the population collapsed the city plummeted down again so I, th- I think that the lesson that, that, that anthropology archaeology shows about cities is a city that does lots of things has a longer future than a city that just does one thing so whether that one thing is government or that one thing is manufacturing. Greg, thank you. All right. Um, Let me pivot and go on to our our next series of speakers. Uh, Gordon Ho is the ex-chief marketing officer of Princess Cruise Lines, and he is currently the founder of Expertainment.com. Gordon, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the cruise line industry? Yes. I'm going to cover three areas related to cruise and COVID. First, the impact COVID has had on cruising. Second, the current cruiser mindset. And third, what the future cruise experience might look like. First, cruising has been one of the most impacted businesses when it comes to COVID. The CDC issued a no-sale order beginning March 13th, which grounded cruises for the past seven months. These no-sale orders were extended to October 31st. As you can imagine, 
not generating any sailing revenue for seven months have been hard for the industry, and it has been devastating to thousands of employees in the category and also to those markets who depend on cruise tourism. Beyond the absence of revenue, the cruise category themselves were impacted by an abundance of adverse media coverage surrounding coronavirus cases on several ships. Now, some of this coverage was on Princess Cruises, where members of the Princess team, including myself, were involved in managing the care and well-being of guests and crew during the COVID outbreak. Our actions were developed jointly with the HHS, CDC, WHO, and other health organizations to execute a quarantine aboard our ships and later at military bases around the country. Importantly, much of the learnings from these real-time operations are being utilized in the restart of cruising, which I'll outline later. Notably, of the many passengers who are impacted by the COVID quarantines aboard our ships, you'll find that the vast majority of them have rebooked a cruise for 2021 and beyond. These loyal passengers cite the quality of care and service they received as a key reason for coming back, not to mention their enduring passion for cruising, which leads to my second point, the current mindset of today's cruiser and their desire to cruise. I think it's important for listeners to understand people's passion for cruising and why, despite this pandemic, many cruisers can't wait to come back. Cruising typically generates higher guest satisfaction than equivalent land-based vacations among those who have done both. The practical reason is that it's more efficient. You only unpack once. Your ship travels to new destinations while you sleep. So for those of us who are time-starved, you can get up to 30% more vacation on a cruise. In fact, many cruisers cite the surprise and delight moment of sleeping at night and waking up to see a new port of call each day outside their balcony. Cruising also provides amazing experiences on board from entertainment like Broadway shows, culinary offerings from world-class chefs, relaxation and wellness from exceptional spas and fitness centers, but most importantly, something I call summer camp for adults, which is when you're on a cruise, it's easy to meet new people. You'll frequently start up a friendly conversation with someone at the bar or afternoon tea or on a shared shore excursion. These social interactions get reinforced throughout the cruise, and more often than not, real friendships are made. In fact, Harvard professor and noted happiness expert Sean Aker observed that cruising may be the happiest of any vacation because of these strong social connections that take place. So again, what I call the adult summer camp social connections effect of cruising provides one of the reasons that many people can't wait to get back on a cruise. So when are people going to get back on a cruise and will the experience be the same? Well, that goes to the third point, which is the future cruise experience. In fact, some initial cruises have restarted in Europe and other parts of the world. And while there has been a few bumps, for the most part, they've gone well. And as mentioned, starting in November, although more likely in December and beyond, cruises should resume in the U.S. The key for the resumption of cruising will likely will be to ensure the safety and health of all guests and crew. The first step will be pre-testing for COVID before any passenger comes aboard the ship. The most recent health recommendations are to have all guests get tested one to five days prior and likely again at the terminal, with even more testing for crew. Importantly, this critical first step is to prevent any people from boarding the ship who have COVID. Second, rigorous disinfection procedures will be implemented, particularly high-touch surfaces. Think elevator buttons or self-check-in terminals, which may be found at airports or cruise terminals, so you'll see high-frequency disinfection there and other areas across the ship. And augmenting the disinfection of surfaces, you'll see more touchless technologies being rolled out, such as touchless check-in and touchless payment. 
Third, a variety of air management strategies will be used, including more frequent circulation of fresh air throughout the ship and upgraded air filtration systems to reduce exposure to infectious aerosols. Fourth, modifications will be made to onboard experiences. From a food perspective, the beloved cruise buffet will change. Food will be served to you by servers or there will be ready-to-grab containers with prepared portions. No more shared serving tongues. There likely will be an emphasis on more alfresco outdoor dining and use of smart location-based wearables, such as the Princess Ocean Medallion or Disney Magic Band, which will allow for food and drink delivery to wherever you are located on the ship. From an entertainment perspective, guests will be required to wear masks and maintain social distance at show performances. Venues will operate at limited capacity, so it's likely there will be fewer shows, but performed at greater frequency so all guests can enjoy them. And fifth, off the ship, as we've seen in Europe, shore excursions will likely be limited to verified cruise line offerings, where the tour guides and people you interact with will have been regularly screened for COVID to maintain your safety off the ship. Finally, cruise lines will have detailed protocols in case someone does get COVID. There will be detailed, dedicated quarantine cabins to isolate passengers, and there will be COVID tests on board. And there'll be prearranged procedures with the ports on safe disembarkation and transport for any of these affected passengers. Ultimately, it'll take time for cruising to return to pre-COVID levels, and how the cruise lines execute their voyages in the coming months will be key in instilling confidence for passengers to return. Thank you. That was great, Gordon. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Aaron Luber. Aaron is head of uh, virtual and augmented reality at Google. Uh, Aaron, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. Um, if you'll indulge me for a minute on a history lesson, uh, you know, in order to explain what happens next, I think it's always important to set some context on where we've been. So over the past 10 years, we've all been witnessing, you know, a major shift of computing. Uh, this is the major shift from PC to mobile. Uh, I was lucky to start my career at this major shift, as Mitch was mentioning, him and I go way back. And right uh, out of college around 2005, uh, I was able to kind of jump into the explosion of, of mobile and, and mobile business. And it was uh, when Apple kind of released the iPhone in 2007, 2008, that, that really the groundswell really started shifting. Uh, and really in 2010, by 2010, uh, you had smartphone, ubiquitous smartphones, and an incredible momentum happening across app stores, uh, both on Apple and Android devices. You had social platforms taking off like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and you basically had this uh, behavior that necessitated, you know, if you left your phone at home, uh, you basically felt like you were naked. Um, and so when you look back at the past 10 years, basically 2010 through 2020, this has been a decade that's been dominated by the explosion of mobile computing. Um, and actually now we're at this point of kind of saturation. Mobile is leveling out. Everybody has a mobile device. More specifically, from a business perspective, um, all businesses, all industry fully understand kind of mobile and the mobile consumer. Um, you know, every business has embraced the accessibility of everybody having a mobile phone on them at all times. Um, businesses have been thinking about, you know, mobile first, uh, this concept of mobile first, being, you know, getting to a consumer only on their mobile phone. E-commerce has boomed. You know, Amazon's made it so quickly, so easy for us to do one-click purchasing. Um, and even when I think about where I have started in my career with mobile, we were putting the first video on uh, smartphones, on feature phones. And at the time, people thought we were crazy. And at this point, 
uh, you know, platforms like YouTube, 70%, there's billions of users coming to YouTube every month, um, you know, billions of hours of watch time, and 70% of that is being driven by mobile devices. And so mobile has, you know, firmly been this kind of, you know, massive shift over the past 10 years. I've been lucky to, again, continue this trend of being at the forefront of these major shifts in computing. And so I've uh, been working in augmented and virtual reality for the, pa the past five years. And in about 2015, we started seeing this next major shift in, in computing, what we call immersive computing. Um, and it's, it's really kind of a, a, the next step of compute that is much more tactile. It's much more all around us. It's very focused on bridging the digital world and the physical world. Um, and so that might sound very buzzy, so let me explain with some very specific uh, examples. Um, virtual reality is uh, basically wearing a, a head-worn headset that gives you kind of a virtual experience in your peripheral. Uh, people use it for gaming and entertainment, social. Facebook has made, made major strides in virtual reality. Augmented reality can also be done wearing a, a wearable headset, but a lot of augmented reality experiences and the ones that I do at Google are really driven through the smartphone, through your mobile phone. And it's using your mobile uh, display, your, your phone, and the camera that's on the back of your phone as basically a magic window that opens you know, the camera and then gives you the ability to overlay and put images all around you uh, as if they were really there, bridging that digital and physical. Um, one of the experiences also that I think is just so perfect when you think about kind of the 2D world that we have really been living in for the past 10 years and now this new 3D world that we're kind of butting into, I always give the example of Google Maps. I, you know, I, I live in the New York area and so I'm constantly, I was constantly coming out of the subway and trying to figure out where I was going. Uh, and so I look at Google Maps, I pull up Google Maps and I try to figure out where I'm going and I've got the blue dot and I'm walking down the street and I start going towards my direction. And of course, I, I realize I'm walking in the wrong direction and I turn around and have to walk in the other direction. I'm sure we've all done that before. What we've done in terms of introducing augmented reality to Google Maps is giving you the ability to do that same experience, but now open your camera in Google Maps and your camera is now a magic window that is showing you the direction of where you're going. So you hold up your camera and it's pointing you down the street. It's saying, here's an arrow that, you know, go this way, then the, your next destination is coming up on the left, make a left. This becomes so much more immersive, so much more tactile. You're now able to under, really understand the physical world around you. Um, in terms of kind of where we see, you know, what's been happening due to COVID, um, you know, this, this next kind of shift that we're going to be experiencing this has been a moment that's not necessarily game-changing for us. It's, it's, it's accelerating. I think all the speakers have talked about this acceleration moment that's happening. Um, what, we're, what we've seen is just a massive amount of, uh, of, of more use cases, more, more consumer use cases, and, and the industry use case behind it. If you think about virtual reality, uh, you know, virtual reality – has, uh, has, has been around for five years. We've been selling VR headsets. We've been um, having those in market. And COVID comes along and everybody's stuck at home. The VR business has been booming. Everybody is buying VR headsets. They're consuming and entertaining content in VR headsets. And more than just the purchase of those devices, I think what's really important when you can really see this, these next major shifts is the ecosystem that's being developed. So the content and the games and the, the content that's going in them 
the companies that are, are, are building these game developers, content creators, they're starting to make real money, millions of dollars. Facebook is, has talked a lot about this. Their ecosystem is generating a lot of business. That's the key point when you really start seeing, you know, the, the, the hockey curve starting to hit for, for virtual reality. On augmented reality, we work a lot with a lot of businesses. And as Larry mentioned at the beginning of the call, there's some industries that have already been using AR at table stakes. Uh, beauty is one of them. They've been realizing that there is a great way to meet their consumers on their mobile devices very easily. And now in a post-COVID world where it's going to be very hard to have consumers come into stores and put makeup on their faces and kind of the, the, the difficulty of doing that, um, augmented reality allows you to hold your camera up to your face, your phone up to your face, open the camera, the front-facing camera on your phone as if you were going to take a selfie, and we can overlay lipstick and hair color and skin color onto your face to make it seem as, and, and see what you look like. Um, you might have seen some of this through Snapchat and Instagram and just basic types of lenses. You've probably seen this on FaceTime and things like that. But the beauty industry has embraced this dramatically, and they're going to need to in order to be able to sustain themselves in this post-COVID world. In, with companies like IKEA uh, and other hard goods, they've been already thinking about this space for a while, but people who have been at home and might not be able to go to stores, they're going to still want to buy consumer devices, uh, consumer products. You can put a sofa in your living room. You can put other items in your living room to see what that might look like. You don't have to go to the store anymore to, to, to see these things. Of course, people are doing uh, e-commerce is booming, but you still want to understand and, and bridge your physical world to understand what it might look like in your home, and you can do that with augmented reality. Again, holding your phone up against your, your wall, being able to look at it and then put a, a, a painting perfectly sized or a TV or you're trying to, the, the, one of the best examples, you're trying to put a new, you're trying to buy a new TV. It's not what TV you want, it's what size TV. Do I want the 40 inch, the 50 inch, the 60 inch? You can easily size real time that TV on your wall to, to see a, a, an augmented view of what that might look like. On the automotive side, the same thing. It's going to be a long time before people are going back into uh, dealerships to buy cars. Also, you're having this massive shift that's being driven by Tesla and others where online buying is a really big consumer behavior. Uh, consumers using AR can go into their existing car. If they want to just see what it's like to be inside the car, a lot of people just want to go and see what the inside of the car looks like, right? They went to the dealership, see what it looks like inside. They can sit down. They can hold their phone up again, have that camera view, and move their phone around and have that magic window view as if it really looked like they were inside their car, uh, inside the car they want to buy. Or if they want to see what the size of that car is that's going to fit into their uh, driveway, they can, again, hold their phone up, hold their camera up, and put that right there in, in their driveway to see what the size dimensions are going to look like. All of these industries have been embracing this for a while, but the acceleration moment is so dramatic for them because they understand this is going to be the new behavior by which they're going to have to meet their consumers. Um, I think the, the important part of, of understanding kind of where also a lot of immersive computing continues to go over the next 10 years is really just in the creation of all of the things we're talking about, the, the, the content. These are all 3D assets. These are all uh, 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 physical, you know, items that are made into a digital representation of lifelike objects. And so if you think about how much we are also making strides to kind of create in lifelike and create in, in, in real time, um, this is the same thing in trying to create 
uh, more realistic view of us. And AR and VR has been making significant strides in, in, in that ability. Um, I think there's, we're going to see a major shift. Uh, we talked about kind of all the changes about uh, the way people are consuming video conferencing and Zoom, but I think a lot of what we are going to see, we don't even know yet. We don't even know what the ripple effect uh, of, of this is going to look like. Some of the speakers, again, have talked about this. I think, you know, Zoom is doing a good job today. It's working today. We've actually proven, many businesses have proven that we can actually make uh, our business continue to work. But I don't think we really understand what the impact of this is going to be from more of a, a connection and empathy, understanding one another. And so, again, when we think about kind of where even video conferencing will go in this immersive, in this next stage of immersive computing, if we can create in 3D and we can create more lifelike, um, there are simple tools that people have been using, and then there's cameras and advanced sensors that can capture people in real time. And if we can do that, I think that the next stage of where video conferencing can truly up-level itself is to create much more real-life experience. You know, I was joking with Larry when we were on the phone uh, before this call, uh, talking about, about this talk today, and, you know, and, and I was explaining to him kind of where we see the, the, this going. Larry was, was looking at me kind of off to the side in a small little box on the screen. We were doing a normal Zoom call, but it was, it, it, you know, this was an experience that did not look anything like it was really Larry. Um, I think that there's ways that we can improve through eye tracking, simple eye tracking. We can actually look at each other in the eye. I can see an actual full representation of Larry in a full size as he's really there. And audio, there's so much that can be done with audio to improve just the audio experience. These are subtle clues that we don't even understand are happening in our head. But when you get, you know, uh, ambient audio correctly, that, that, that's such a major shift that makes it really feel like we're actually really there. And some of these things that we think are going to be able to do is make it, you know, so much more meaningful for you having a conversation and not understanding what these ripple effects are. You know, meaningful conversations with your boss, um, having a performance review, important convos between C-level, you know, business leaders that are trying to hash out real big problems and might not understand some of the nuances between, you know, having that serious conversation, interviewing people, right? There's so many aspects of the way that we're talking today that are sort of working, but we might not even really understand uh, uh, the impact of what that's going to look like for some time. Um, so I yeah, think we interrupt you just for a sec. What do you think um, the effect will be of the, finding the physical, going to the physical store being unnecessary? So just pick one. You can pick furniture, your TV example, um, your sofa, your beauty product. Does that mean that all those beauty stores are going to disappear? And if they do, is, does it mean that our relationship will change from being with Sephora to being directly with um, the manufacturer of these items. In other words, are we getting yeah. are we getting rid of the middleman, the auto dealer, um, the beauty shop, um, yeah. the furniture uh, yeah, distributor? Think, yeah, uh, Larry, I think we are, uh, and I think it's already been happening. I mean, if you just look at beauty, uh, there's been a number of startups that have been coming out in during this COVID time. Um, and they, they have officially said we're not opening stores. Um, I think there's definitely going to be vertical and industry that are heavily affected. I mean, if you just look at beauty, you have, you know, the, the whole uh, precipice on, on going in and putting uh, lipstick on your face. And so no one's going to want to put a lipstick on their face that might have been touched by somebody else. And so there's real 
challenges and real concerns there. And for them, they, I think, have to make that decision to move to a much more e-commerce and, and online focus. I think other industries and verticals may not be as affected, but um, they're realizing that they can probably uh, get to their consumer more and more. Again, this is a shift in the way people are, are, are consuming, are, are computing and, and, and getting to uh, their products, and they can probably do that faster and better and cheaper uh, as well. So there's gonna, they're making a lot of trade-offs and understandings right now. I want to make order in conversation. Go ahead. Is that Mitch? Yeah, that was Mitch. Uh, yeah, I just quickly wanted to ask Aaron. So, um, you know, a lot of times with technology adoption, there's questions of, like, the killer app. And I guess, you know, which is more of a concept. I don't mean app literally. But, you know, there's a lot of people on this call listening to you who are, like, uh, virtual, you know, uh, augmented reality, I've never experienced that. I mean, is there something like a concept of a killer app uh, in this industry? Is it, you know, the, the video conferencing experience? Or if not, is it sort of more incremental, uh, sort of industry by industry, or even more of a business to business um, adoption versus business to consumer? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I, well, I, I can tell you what we have are kind of banking on one of the things that's just squarely rooted in, in, in Google's kind of um, ethos, their history. It's, it's, it's all in search. It's all in, in information. And so, again, it's, it, we believe that if we can get uh, a more lifelike and more kind of uh, a human way to experience the world around you and search the world around you, that's going to drive an even more valuable uh, user or, or, or val valuable use case for the user as well. And so, you know, Google Lens is a, is a product that we have launched over the past couple of years. It's growing in size, and basically Lens is using your camera to point at any object, anything. Uh, it can read text. It can look at anything that you're staring at right now, your computer, the sofa in your living room. Uh, and it can see and understand what that is and then give you a search result back. So you don't have to type it in. You don't have to speak. You know, you can do those things if you want, and a lot of people will continue doing that. But AR can give the ability just to see and, and understand exactly what you're seeing and then give you that search result right back. And so if you think about kind of then the, the future of wearables and kind of the connectivity of, of all the devices that are around you, whether it's wearing a, a smart band or earbuds, or other things and your phone and things that are on you, um, I think having a much more immersive experience, you know, that, that gives you a much more searched experience. And that could be one that also gives you audio cues in your ear or, or things to your, to your wearable devices. Um, but it's all about searching and understanding the world around you. Hey, Aaron, this is uh, Larry Berg here. I'm yeah. curious where education stands in, your, in the priority list for uh, AR, VR. Um, in terms of, you know, for K-12 and higher ed, are the price points such that they can, or have they penetrated, and if they have sort of domestic versus international in terms of being ready for it? Yeah, ma massively important. Um, education has been a, a vertical, and it's one I should have mentioned as well. It's, it's one that we've been working in for, for years, um, and it's been, and it's at its core, I think, because it's, it's the type of consumers, the, the, the younger generation of consumers that are much more understanding and willing to use AR and VR, number one, 
but also this ability for us. So we've um, um, we just actually announced uh, a number of new things that were coming to, to search, as I mentioned. And we talk a lot about um, 3D assets being in search. And a lot of teachers during COVID have been using because they haven't they don't have their kids in class with them. They can send them to search. You can search. Um, um, chemistry, biology, you can search animals, you can search, I mean, we have dinosaurs, we have, there's, there's education is a huge uh, part of, of creating a much more immersive understanding. Uh, and, and teachers, we're seeing this not just in, in students doing it, but teachers are the ones that are embracing that and adding it as part of their curriculum. Um, we, we actually just put a video up on, on uh, YouTube about this uh, this past week. Let me bring uh, Gordon into the conversation. Gordon, one of the things that um, you talked about was the sense of community aboard the cruise. And a number of us who have never cruised, um, we find the, the whole cruising uh, lifestyle just baffling. And the thing that mm-hmm. and we spoke to offline before, which I found very compelling, was this tremendous sense of community uh, that is missing from other vacations. Can you expand a little bit on what that's like and how that motivates people that want to continue to, to uh, rush back to the cruising opportunity? Yeah, and I, I think I referred that to like the summer camp for adults effect, which is the ability to make strong social connections and community is actually just easy to do because you're all together on a cruise ship. You know you're going to see other people, so there is a lower level of threshold to ask someone, so where are you from? What do you do? And there's no friction in terms of your response. And more often than not, you can say, hey, you want to go out and maybe, you know, let's grab a drink together and so forth. And that community or strong social connections is really, I think, an addictive quality of cruising. I mentioned um, happiness expert Sean Aker. The key to happiness is strong social connections. Loneliness is the opposite. So in terms of why people find cruising so satisfying and so happy is because they actually meet new friends, whether it's fellow passengers or crew members, and you'll find that they end up vacationing for years on end together because they discovered each other on a cruise. So that's just some of the power that doesn't happen with a normal vacation. If you go on a normal vacation, you'll nod and say hello to someone, but you're not going to become a meaningful friend to that person. So I think that's something that's, that's important. And I will mention to something on what Aaron's talking about on Google. We think that travel is a big part of augmented reality because when you see places and you see things, the story behind something, whether it's the Colosseum in Rome or Mount Vesuvius, it's the story that brings that particular item to life. And I think AR plays such a critical role with your phone in particular that uh, I think travel could be one of those killer benefits that um, you were asking about earlier. And totally agree. you mentioned that safety is obviously a critical thing and you went into a lot of detail about that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that if you're outdoors, it appears some science suggests that you're much safer than you're indoors. Is it going to be easy for um, to redesign these existing cruise ships to encourage behavior to get you out of the indoor areas and into this outdoor space where you eat, where you play, where you hang out at night? Mm-hmm. Just how do you think about that problem? Yeah, actually, most people actually want to spend time outdoors, right, for for, you know, barring bad weather. So I think alfresco dining, we have large movie screens out there for sports events that people can enjoy, uh, the pools out there. 
um, hot tubs are out there, et cetera. So there's even people who have their entertainment centers or shows out on the top deck. So I think that it can be done. The people actually want to enjoy it, assuming the climate allows you to do that. So I think there will be a transition there, and that will be a part, that's part of the recommendations is where possible to do more activities outdoors. And when indoors, of course, practice social distancing, fast mask wearing, and other things recommended by the CDC. Now, some of us are interested in going back to cruising. Others are interested potentially investing in, in the cruise industry lines. Um, some of the changes you suggested might be expensive um, if we're not able to get the occupancy levels that we had previously. Um, it'll really, it, these marginal costs will really eat you up. Um, how do you think about the economics of cruising mm-hmm. in the context of altering the experience? Well, I think, I think that if you compare cruising to other places that are involved in travel, airplanes, et cetera, I think one of the recommendations for initially for cruising is go to safe destinations. It includes private islands. Almost all the cruise lines own or have access to private islands, which allow you, I guess, to keep a travel or vacation bubble to keep people safe. Not other lines of travel, other parts of travel may not have access to it. So I think while everyone's watching their cash burn across all the different uh, areas of hospitality, cruising does have that point of difference, which will enable them to transition until there is a widespread vaccine, maybe herd, herd immunization such that then they can expand the offerings of where people go. But I think that's one point of difference that cruising has that could weather the storm during the transition. Obviously, that'll be very problematic to those communities that were dependent on um, cruises getting off and shopping in their stores. Yeah, and I think that's part of the agreement is that in terms of these verified shore excursions, working with the local port operators, they're going to say, hey, we will visit, but there's going to have to be social distance. Maybe they require the shore, the shopkeeper who's opening up their store to be tested regularly, social distance, wearing masks. So those will be the, the idea of pre-approved, pre-validated excursions. And I think you're going to see a lot of that, is that they don't want necessarily people from the cruise to get off and go off on their own. In fact, there's been cases where that happened in Europe where it just started up and they prevented those people from getting back on the ship because they basically broke the bubble. So I think you're going to have extra caution during these initial test runs. And once people start to see how things are working, then you're going to start to see expansion of what can or can't be done. Okay, thank you. All right, yep. the show is now going to pivot to sports. Um, our first speaker is Simon Johnson. Simon is the chair of the UK Rugby Football League. Simon, fire away. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a non-executive chair, so I'm, uh, I'm only four days a month, but I am the ambassadorial lead for the sport. And for those of you who may not know much about Rugby League, we are 125 years old. We're played by teams of 13 athletes. The ball is oval-shaped, it must be passed backwards, and its heartland is the communities of the north of England. The powerhouse nations are England, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, where it is, believe it or not, the national sport. Now, at the start of our season in February 2020, we were looking forward to celebrating our 125th anniversary. We'd also just completed the draw for the Rugby League World Cup, being hosted in England in 2021. Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, performed the draw and got us a high level of cut through publicly for the tournament, in which we will simultaneously, for the first time ever, stage tournaments for men, women and wheelchair teams. But COVID shut us down. 
and we were not able to restart our season until August the 2nd of this year. And even then, we could, as we are now, only play without spectators, a situation which will now last until the end of the season. The disruption from COVID caused us challenges, though, for when we restarted. Our game involves players being tackled to the ground and regular close face-to-face contact between players, which creates a high risk of transmission in play. So for safety reasons, with the benefit of medical advice and to prevent the in-play transmission of the disease, we made changes to the rules of our game. Now, currently, after certain infringements, we currently restart the game with what we call a scrum. That's where eight players on each side form up in a set piece in order to start the game. For the duration of the COVID, we did away with the scrums and started the game again after an infringement in a different way. And in the event of an infringement in the act of the tackle or restarting the game, rather than start with a spot kick, then the attacking team would receive a whole new set of tackles again. It's like receiving a whole new set of downs in NFL. So these were introduced changes to prevent players from catching COVID while playing. They were introduced, as I say, for safety reasons. But what they ended up doing was speeding up the game, creating a faster paced game and giving an advantage to more nimble, skill-based players. Now, commentators, journalists, fans and officials are beginning not just not to notice the changes, but are now seriously considering making these as permanent changes to the rules and ensuring that these rule changes are coordinated across Australia and the other test playing nations where they haven't needed to introduce all of these rules because of the different progression of COVID within those countries. So these changes caused by the disruption to the, by, from the illness could end up revolutionizing our game for the better. The other change we made came from the fact that due to COVID-related postponements of matches, not all teams had played or would play the same number of games in a season. And so we changed the way that the league standings are calculated so that we look at win percentage rather than actual points. At a stroke, Catalan Dragons, the French team who had played fewer matches than the others, were catapulted into the playoff places where they remain now with just a few games left in the season. Now, as a sport, we do not yet know how this will affect us commercially. But our sponsorship value is likely to be affected as much by COVID and the downturn in the market as by the regulatory appetite for sports sponsorship by certain sectors. And I want to mention a little bit about this because I know it's going to be covered later. A little bit of history. Rugby League sponsors in the 1970s and the 1980s were tobacco companies until tobacco advertising was outlawed. The next category that came onto Rugby League was beer sponsors. But then the government tightened up on alcohol advertising and sponsorship due to European uh, Union in interference before a 9pm watershed. And so we had to uh, move away from having beer sponsors. Now, the two main sponsors of our events are betting companies, something that's permitted in the UK, and it's increasingly common in UK sport at the moment. But 
the UK government is concerned about gambling addiction and is considering putting restrictions on betting sponsors. So although our sponsors in rugby league are UK-based national companies who employ thousands of people in the UK, have bricks and mortar businesses that, uh, that pay substantial taxes to the Treasury, what we're concerned about is that it will be regulation and not just COVID that will impact our sponsorship market. So the, the challenge that we would have expected from COVID on sponsorship, that of a tough market and declining value, is now exacerbated by a regulatory threat which to shut off part of the market to, uh, to us. So this has been a bit of a whistle-stop tour around our issues, and I'll be very happy to take questions later on. Great. Thank you, Simon. Um, our next speaker is Larry Berg. Larry Berg uh, is a senior partner at Apollo, but he's also the lead managing owner of the Los Angeles Football Club. Larry, take it away. Thanks, Larry. So I thought I would um, spend time in talking about the MLS or the U.S. Domestic Soccer League, trying to focus on those things that differentiate us from the other American sports leagues, since we're all in a very challenging environment without fans, or most of us without fans. Um, I thought I'd start with what was happening in our league pre-COVID. We actually came into the 2020 season with some pretty good momentum. We had um, a few expansion teams, so we're on. We have 26 teams today. We're on our way to 30 uh, with teams that have already been granted. Uh, that's a doubling in about 10 years. Um, the expansion fees have gone up 10 times in 10 years. So Seattle, about 10 years ago, got an expansion team for 30 million. Um, Charlotte just got one for 300 million. So a lot of appreciation there. Um, there's a ton of uh, new soccer-specific stadiums being built. So the infrastructure is terrific. In our case, in Los Angeles, we built a 22,000-seat stadium for $370 million in, in downtown Los Angeles uh, three years ago. Um, we sell out every game. We have 18,000 season ticket holders. So the particular vibe at an MLS game with the supporters and with the chaining all game, et cetera, is particularly good. Um, and uh, the rosters have gotten a lot younger. So we used to have what was uh, called retirement league players. So we would take the 32- to 36-year-old from Europe who's already seen their best days, and we would bring them in as a league in order to sell more tickets. Um, but uh, the play sort of reflected that. And now we have much younger players and players that can be sold forward. So in my case, last year we had a record year, and we did it with six of my 11 starters, 23 years old or under. So uh, just a massive change. And then the Crown Jewel of the League, which are the academies. I think the MLS academies are just kind of reaching their stride. Um, I would say the best example of that is Alfonso Davies, who was sold from Vancouver to Bayern Munich. He's now their starting left back. Some would say they're start, uh, the best left back in the world at 19, and he was sold for 20 million euro. And there are examples of FC Dallas selling an academy player to Juventus, another one to Bayern Munich, New York Red Bull, sold a 20-year-old academy player uh, to Leipzig in the Bundesliga, and in our case, we signed our first academy player since we're newer, three 16-year-olds. Um, and obviously, if you build your own, then if you sell those players someday, which I'll get into in a second, um, it's, it's all profit, and it helps make the model go. So we actually had a lot of momentum. Um, the bad news about our league was we have very little TV money. So a huge differentiator between ourselves and the other big sports leagues or those that are bigger than us uh, is that we don't have TV to fall back on when there's no fans. So we literally have a $90 million national TV contract for what today is 26 teams, so a few million bucks per team, and pretty much no local TV revenues. So it was really a league built on game day revenues, fans and sponsors, 
uh, and then, of course, transfer fees, et cetera. So when COVID hit, in our case, COVID hit in March. We played uh, our season starts in March. We played two regular season games, um, and then uh, it was all it was all stopped. We basically had no revenue until July, when we did a bubble in Orlando, kind of like the NBA at, at Disney World. Um, but in that case, there were no fans, and frankly, our TV money. We were just fulfilling the contract for the 90 million in national TV revenues. We didn't have any fans. We didn't have any revenues, or not many revenues for the league, for the teams. Um, and then we got back into our markets when that was over. In our case, it was August 22nd, and we were back into our stadiums. But once again, no game day revenue. Um, and so it's obviously taken a huge financial toll on the, on the business model. Um, and that was before a few other things cropped up that, I guess, surprised me being my first time uh, doing this with a pandemic. Um, one of them is club and country. So one of the things that makes uh, soccer great, uh, in my opinion, is that you not only have players that play for their clubs, but they also play for their national teams. Um, in, in our case, in Los Angeles, we have seven players that play for their national team, seven of our 11 starters. And the way it works with FIFA is uh, a few times during the year, they have two-week windows. The agreement with the domestic leagues all throughout the world is they stop playing their domestic league games, so clubs are not disadvantaged. Um, and then you release your players to international duty. Um, and so they don't really miss many games. The problem is... Um, when they get back during COVID, they have a 10-day required quarantine period. So that's already hitting us now in October, but there's another window in November. And when the players get back, the playoffs are going to start. And so seven of my 11 starters uh, will probably be under quarantine. So here you go and you build a roster and you invest in young talent and you spend more money than others. And with COVID, it's turned that into a negative. So club and country has really, really hurt us. Um, and so just mentally, we all feel like that's okay in 2020. We know it's an unusual year, and everyone just has to do what they have to do. But what do you do in 2021? And so we've been talking about pushing the season back instead of starting in March, perhaps starting mid-year, trying to give a longer period of time for a vaccine to be developed and distributed. Um, but the national team games don't stop, and the, and the international tournaments don't stop. So what do you do with your players in the meantime? Uh, Europe has a much bigger set of TV contracts. Uh, the EPL in particular in the UK has NFL-type contracts, like $5 billion plus versus our $90 million. So they can keep playing without fans and make a go of it. And so, you know, do we loan our players to Europe in the spring when we're not playing, waiting for the vaccine while they're playing? So that's, that's going to be a difficult set of decisions. And then the last part of the transfer markets. Uh, in soccer, another thing that makes it really interesting to me is you can buy and sell contracts in soccer. Um, different teams do it different ways. We did invest in uh, 10 players with transfer fees in order to make that flywheel work. We have to sell those players after a few years and eventually their contracts come up and you could lose them on a free. But as you can imagine, in the world of COVID, the transfer market is quite depressed. And with the exception of the top teams in the world, other folks don't really have the money and the top teams aren't spending as much, so it doesn't trickle down to us. Um, so in transfer market, which is a third-party resource, values are squatted about 75 million bucks. And our number one player, who is a 20-year-old we got from Uruguay two years ago, we spent about seven million on him. Transfer market values in about 20 million, um, and he just got his first call up to the Uruguay national team. We can't sell him today. Um, hopefully, we can, and the market rebounds next summer. The summer window is the big window. The winter window is the small window. So. Um, and then the last part's the academy. The academies are basically shut down, uh, can't play at all. So uh, it's something we invest a lot of money in. It's one of the ways we feel like we can turn it into a business model that's sustainable. 
by creating our own players that we don't have to go into the market and pay for. Um, and it's a particularly exciting time now in, uh, in U.S. soccer and the MLS because we now have placed players in some of the top teams in the world, the Chelsea's, the Dortmund's, the Juventus's, et cetera. Um, but right now that part's shut down. So the business model is a bit upside down. Not exactly sure where that leads us. We have all the same issues that the other leagues have in terms of testing and positive tests and games postponed, et cetera. But the lack of TV money, the national team games, and the depressed transfer market uh, adds some particular uh, unique challenges. And with that, I'll kick it back to you. Thanks, Larry. Okay, our final speaker coming up is Dan Orwell. Uh, Dan is president and CEO of Vetnos, a fintech B2B platform focused on sports betting. Dan, take it away. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Go ahead. Terrific. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Mitch. Uh, Again, uh, Dan Orwell. I'm President Chief Operating Officer of Vetnos. Vetnos is a sports gaming business that is owned by Joshua Berkowitz. Uh, My comments are general in the nature. The American sports betting business is currently undergoing significant changes due to legal and regulatory reform technology and the sports fans' betting preferences. I want to tell you about Three important trends I see in sports betting where Vetness is building an enterprise solution. These are convergence, growth, and data. Particularly COVID and COVID responses has accelerated all these trends. First is convergence. This means we are seeing the application of technology that was created for other purposes and is now being applied to sports betting. So for example, a phone app can provide the consumer simple and easy way for fans to bet on sports in real time, either from the stadium or from the comfort of their home. As Aaron Luber just discussed, immersive computing technology and 5G infrastructure is now available. I think this will fundamentally change how fans engage with live sports. Further, FinTech, the technology and data management created for markets, banking, and payments is now fully available for sports betting. What happened on Wall Street in the last 20 years will happen in sports gaming in the next three. Second, there are changes in supply and demand that will foster growth. I initiated the legalization in New Jersey, and I feel that I have some insight here. In the past, sports betting was severely limited, both by the states and the federal government, but this regulatory limitation is going away, and that opens an enormous growth potential, and the market is capitalizing these opportunities. So the supply side for growth is better. On the demand side, I expect the U.S. to follow the already extensive markets in the rest of the world. What we see outside the U.S. is a desire to bet on all aspects of the game. COVID initially closed most sporting events, and these venues are slowly reopening, but without a live audience. Viewers are not as engaged in the sporting events without the enthusiasm of a stadium audience. The way to engage the now-at-home audience is with sports betting. That surge was evident in New Jersey and elsewhere, both in the U.S. and abroad. Again, this is a global asset class. One of the things we're most proud of at Vetnos is that we offer global sports. In digital branding, we talk about content, community, and commerce. Sports gaming is an important source of revenue and fan engagement. On both the supply and the demand side, I believe that betting offerings and changing technology will change the way that the fan engages with the game, the players, the teams, and the leagues. Fantasy sports in the past few years has altered the fan relationship as it emphasized the importance of the player over the team. I think that this trend will continue to accelerate with refined betting products that will often be based on the performance of an individual player. 
Vetnos, for instance, offers a variety of patent and patent pending games, including over-unders, matchups, trifecta, all in parlay format for fixed odds and event markets. These games are a hybrid of sports gaming, daily fantasy, and casino games. Our business model generates 38% net revenue as an 80% operating margin with four times the net revenue of daily fantasy product and 10 times the net revenue of a sports book. We centrally place all risks like an exchange and act as an integrity tool since we're predicting player performance. We work directly with team owners, leagues, and venue operators as a go-to-market digital solution for B2B gaming and engagement. Third, and final, is the importance of data. Betting applications will generate a lot of consumer data, and they will have a lot of potential uses for teams, players, and advertisers. Gaming generates profits, but customer acquisition costs for betters is expensive. By way of example, in Australia, gaming customers generate over $2,000 per user. In the U.S., daily fantasy player acquisition is priced around $125 and sports betting acquisition is around $700 per customer. The point here is there's an arbitrage if you have and understand the data on conversion and cross-sell. Around the world, the top advertisers for sporting events previously had been tobacco and alcohol companies, as noted. These will be replaced by gaming sites, and as already the case in the UK, even in the challenges that rugby is seeing in terms of problem gaming as Simon Johnson just noted. If you have a relevant sports brand, think very hard about the value of your data and who is getting the benefit of that asset. I also suspect that betting will fundamentally change the nature of how fans watch sports. Live betting markets will be available on TV screens and smartphones and AR and a host of other technologies so that fans can monitor the markets like what viewers now see on business programs. I expect that live markets will be quoted on the screens at stadiums, arenas, and ballparks, same as what is available at the horse track. Last, on data, I wanted to emphasize that globally the rules and regulatory policies on data are changing, and that data is intrinsic to digital media models. This is a topical observation, but recently the New York Post lost access to Twitter and Facebook. There's an ongoing policy argument about digital media being exempt from broadcast rules under an area of Federal Communications Commission Law Class Section 230. This is just one of many examples of how what I call the three Ps of privacy, programming, and platform all share a common set of policy questions for digital media, digital media advertising models. Having some experience on how regulation changes business models, I suspect that if restrictions are applied, an eventual implication is that digital media companies will move into the sports gaming business, as sports is the sole and largest global vertical that operates 365 days a year with community, content, and commerce. Uh, looking backwards, I can say this. I used to run money, and timing always mattered. The timing is, at this point, bottom of the third inning. I would have said bottom of the first part of COVID, but the evolution has now become revolution. Betting is fun and American. We believe in our favorite athletes and our favorite teams. And from personal experience, I can tell you, winning a Super Bowl bet or March Madness bracket is fantastic. So expect an increase in total fan engagement and appreciation for the microanalytics of sports gaming markets. Yeah, that was terrific. I uh, want to start with questions for you. Um, so for the benefit of our audience, who um, we understand sort of basic bets, like um, will the Bears beat the Vikings and the spread is two points. 
Um, what kind of bets are you thinking about incorporating into your platform? Well, we do player prediction matchups. And what we've done is we've revised the entirety of the bid-ask spread model to a prediction market model. So that means we can put together any number of sports games, including class two games for tribal gaming, or replicate casino games into that same sports gaming franchise. And using that same centrally managed uh, risk system, we can put together basically any sports gaming product that we sort of can invent. Does that answer the question clearly enough? Well, maybe just to make it simplified so that um, uh, a, a fan can understand. Um, so imagine you, you combine, let's say, four different bets, and if you, if you are correct on all four bets, you might get a payoff of, let's say, 10 to 1 instead of a theoretical 16 to 1 if they're all even Steven. Um, what kind of bets would they include if it was a baseball game, for example? Would you be betting on whether or not a single player might get a hit during the game? Uh, would you bet on how many strikeouts the pitcher would get? Uh, will you bet on whether or not um, you know there will be a triple or something during the game? Sure. What kind of bets sure. do you the, 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 we, we do player prop uh, on, a, on that parlay basis, and we have multiple games that will let you take your favorite players, put them together, and uh, on you know who will have the better – performance score with the better in-game product, and it's all head-to-head. Um, and so what it allows you to do is to take your favorite player and match them up against some other favorite player. So you can look at James Harden or Steve Curry and say, hey, they may not be playing tonight, but in this game I can play them head-to-head. And what that allows us to do is to manage the risk centrally, and everybody gets the same odds for our English Premier League product, our Bundesliga product, our, our, our auto product, our North American sports, tennis, golf, all of that. And everybody gets the same uh, odds and the same payouts. And you're offering a, a B2B product so that you can um, work with owners of various sports teams. So Larry Berg is on the call. He's one of the owners of a soccer team in Los Angeles. What kind of product would you be offering, Larry? It's his brand, his data, and we are just there to drive his brand back to his customers so he can manage the data for his customers, get the benefit of that data, and then get the revenue share that comes from the centrally managed liquidity that comes out of that. So this is a B2B solution. Uh, we're not interested in uh, taking anything away from his customers. We're here to enable his fan experience throughout the fan life cycle. Does, this is Larry. Does California have to have sports gambling first? No. We actually operate under a fantasy sports and a hole-in-one exemption and uh, we expect to be able to offering additional games you know, that are um, similar to what you might find in that. But since we operate in the daily fantasy sports and hole-in-one exemptions, no, we don't have any restrictions for us. Hey, Dan, it's Mitch. I'm, I'm, I would, maybe we can come back to I'm curious to see if Simon agrees that betting is American. But uh, I wanted to ask you, um, when you talked about you know, uh, what happened on Wall Street in the past 20 years is coming to sports betting, I just want to understand a little bit more what you were talking about. I'm not sure. Maybe you're talking about summer, all of these things. Is it the technology? Is it the predictive power? Um, you know, is it, is it something else? What, what were you referring to when you said that? 
Well, I mean, you know, if you think about where exchanges have gone to, uh, so that's one example of how people now create price discovery. You know, that old, those old models of a bookie with a bid-ask spread and a layoff, that's gone. That's something we've gotten rid of. Um, if you want to think about sort of the microeconomics of a particular customer, how you acquire the customer, how you create customer acquisition costs with a real-lifetime value, and uh, create additional value for your partners out of that as a digital experience and as a source of revenue. You know, those sorts of things. Um, if you think about the payment side, it used to be a payment economist at the New York Fed. You know, there's all these new interesting things that you can get out of the payment side that give you predictive value as to what will be the next thing to drive fans back, frankly, into venue. Uh, you can incent them with merchandise, with food, with beverage. Basically, at this point, you know, with all the technology that's happened, you can have a mobile sports book in your hand. And um, that's pretty exciting. You know, if you're adding some of the things Aaron talked about and some of the impacts that everything is, you can control for problem gaming because, you know, if you see something wrong, you can control it. It's a lot safer to do this than to have somebody playing the lottery in their neighborhood bodega. And this is a controlled uh, source of uh, commercial risk entertainment, and it's immersive. So this does create brand loyalty and fan awareness. Simon, just to bring you into conversation, uh, betting has been legal uh, for a much longer period of time in the UK. Um, how does the world of betting affect um, rugby as a as, your, as a league as a sponsor? Well, as I said in my uh, in my opening remarks, there um, we are. They are what we call title sponsors of our competitions. We have our cup is called the Coral Challenge Cup. Coral is a big national bookmaker, and our Super League is called the Betfred Super League. So these um, these big brands have have attached themselves to rugby league because they believe that through that they can access data, um, as as uh, uh, as Dan talked about. They can access uh, customer loyalty. They can advertise their wares and their products, and they can try and create interesting markets in and around our sport. I mean, interestingly, whilst we've had uh, sponsors um, from, from um, the, the betting world for us, I don't think we are a large in-play or, or, or total betting sport, really. The, um, the, the biggest sports are obviously horse racing, but, but football is next, and then all the other sports are fighting for the crumbs of market share in the, in the betting world. Um, the big growth in the betting market uh, in, in UK sport uh, has been in in-play betting. And that is advertised. It's advertised in the live broadcasts on TV. Um, they are allowed to advertise it on perimeter boards, and they do tend to do that within the stadiums. Um, and it's that, that sort of instant continual betting that has attracted the attention of our regulators and our government. We are a regulated industry. We have a statutory regulator who can regulate what we can and can't do, can regulate how we can uh, advertise uh, betting uh, to whom and when. Uh, they have provided that if a club has a betting uh, sponsor on the front of their shirt as their main club sponsor, that replica shirt cannot be sold to an under 16-year-old um, with the betting sponsor on the on the chart, so we we've got a lot of growth within our market, but it's it's that very growth that has actually attracted the attention of the regulator to try and damp it down to prevent um, addictive uh, to, to to prevent um, uh, 
problem gambling. What, what is what is it about um, gambling that it upsets the Brits? You know, in the case of the United States, we had the Black Sox, where players threw some games, uh, particularly the World Series. Um, we have a certain puritanical nature of of, of opposition to betting related to some moral code. We also have um, a history of organized crime being related to uh, betting in the sense that it, 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 it preyed against the poor and the unsophisticated. Uh, but other times we've been very, um, we've allowed regulated markets in, in horse betting, for example, which is longstanding. How, do, how, is it, how do you think of the U.S. experience in contrast with the U.K. and its history um, and, and how it affects the regulatory yeah. regime? I think the thing that people are most concerned about from a regulatory perspective with us is is more addiction. It's the addictive nature of gambling and the fact that there is there are there are significant there is a significant increase in problem gambling, uh, addiction to gambling, which is leading to increased mental health issues and and and, and sadly a rise in um, suicide. And it, 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 it's that that's creating uh, the issue more than anything else. It's not just sports betting that's doing that. We have, of course, betting shops here. You can go into a shop. You can bet on a um, on a horse race or a football match. You can actually play a, uh, a, a machine, a fixed odds betting machine, and you can play casino games on that machine. That is probably the biggest source of problem gambling. But the problem is that when the owner of that shop is the sponsor of a sporting event and their name and their logo and their brand and their betting products are being uh, used and beamed over broadcasts uh, into uh, people's homes, uh, and particularly during times when young uh, people uh, young, and children are watching the TV, that's what's attracting the attention of the regulators. So we are not puritanical about betting. We've had betting for a long, long time. The issue that, that our regulators are trying to get to grips with is, to, is whether the balance is right between the, the uh, promotion of gambling and the, and the uh, responsibility of the gambling companies to prevent addiction problem gambling, and the mental and other societal issues that flow from that. Thanks, Simon. So for the first time in the history of what happens next, uh, I've asked a listener to jump on the call and ask a question. And his name is Victor McKeeve. Victor is a junior in high school in the UK. He's on the rugby team of his high school. Uh, rugby is a sport I know very little about, and so I thought I would go to a local expert. Victor, do you want to ask a question at this time to Simon? Uh, yeah, so I was wondering, so traditionally sevens, it, rugby sevens, is meant to be a faster-paced game with, like, more athletic body types. So what would this change mean for rugby league in distinguish, distinguishing between rugby sevens and rugby league? Hi, Victor. Lovely to hear from you, and thanks for that question. You're obviously a rugby union player, that's, that's, uh, so that's the other code of the game. We have our equivalent version of sevens. is actually called nines. It's bizarre, really. We, our full-time game has two, has 13 players. You have 15. Yet your short-form version of it has seven, and yet we have nine. Um, for us, nines works quite well. And actually, what I think is happening here is quite independently of the changes that we are making um, to rugby league, to the to the what I call the full-size game, um, that are making that a faster game. Our nines version is likely to be the big growth area for us internationally. We ran one of our first international nines tournaments in Australia last year, 
and it had a, a small TV deal. It was not. It was sparsely attended in the crowds, but actually the uh, the administrators, the fans, the commentators all thought that it had a prospect of developing into something that will not quite be the same scale and uh, popularity of, say, the Rugby Sevens tournament that, that, that you have. But what it might end up doing, as we change the rules of the full-size game, we might end up finding that players who play the 13-a-side game are equally able and talented enough to play the nines game to the same ability. You'll have noticed that with rugby sevens that there are sevens specialists, specialists in the shorter version of the game. And it's very few of the full-size players who, who will transfer between the sevens. What we're wondering is whether you'll be able to get international players who will play both types because the games in their nature, the speed, the pace, the tackling, they're becoming closer together. So that's what I'm interested to have a look at. And I think it's going to take a while to see how that comes across. I hope that was clear. Thank you. Uh, I want to bring Larry Berg into the conversation. Larry, um, it's interesting that you decided to invest in a soccer team um, in contrast to some of the more well-established sports like baseball or football. Um, Soccer obviously is a huge global phenomena, uh, but is not regarded as a very important sport in the United States. Um, fundamental to your bet must be a transition that soccer will become a much more uh, interesting sport to a, a wide range of American fans. Why did, why did you make that bet? Yeah, so I've been a lifelong uh, soccer fan, but at my age, in my 50s, that's pretty unusual. But I think what you'll find is from a age standpoint and from a diversity standpoint, soccer over-indexes in the United States to the younger fan, and it's very diverse. Um, many of them, frankly, came to it from the FIFA video game, believe it or not. Um, and so folks of our generation, Larry, oftentimes don't get it, but I will tell you that it is growing uh, pretty significantly at younger levels. And I think if you look at uh, player success, which has only been recent, and you look at the... Uh, at the players, either the MLS academies or just Americans in general, literally play now at Bayern Munich, Juventus, Borussia Dortmund, Chelsea, Leipzig, Barcelona, the greatest clubs in the world. And so I think the U.S. men's national team, which I'm also a fan of, uh, will continue to grow in importance and success now that we're not only having players of the best clubs in the world playing at the highest levels, but they're also doing it at very young ages. And I think that will help bring along the U.S. audience. Um, I think the U.S. audience has already found soccer in terms of the in-state vibe. I think the game day experience is, is really quite incredible, but I think from a TV perspective really hasn't caught on yet, but I think it's going to be helped a lot by international success with our national team um, and some of these players that are moving on to the highest levels. In other sports, there's this um, question, I'm a, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan, and you know, when the players get traded, it, it doesn't seem to affect my relationship with the Bulls. Um, you described how these players that you have on your teams are actually players on multiple different teams. They may play on your local team, they play on a national team, they may play on, in another league. How does that affect the relationship uh, between the fan and do the, do the, does the fan feel a relationship with the team? Does it feel with the league? Does it feel with the country? Does it feel with the player? How does that um, combination affect this, I'll call it tribalism, that inherent tribal feeling that we, that we face? Yeah, it really plays out in an interesting way in Los Angeles because in Los Angeles we have the Los Angeles demographic where you know, 40-something percent of our fans are Hispanic, um, and it's very similar to what the rest of the demographics are. So 
our fans are all LAFC supporters. They wear the black and gold. They travel oftentimes to away games. But when the international uh, calendar hits, and, for example, the Mexican national team plays the U.S. men's national team, our, flan- our fans actually split. And so in the case of Mexico, they wear the green jersey, uh, red, white, and blue for the USA, and then they come back together for LAFC. So they have split loyalties. <clears throat> and the part that I find so fascinating is when we take one of our best players or one of our best young players and we sell them abroad and we monetize that uh, and hopefully make a profit, you'd think our fans would be upset because we're getting rid of our talent. But in a very odd way, it kind of reminds me of American Idol, where people kind of feel like they're participating in the discovery of some new young player. And as long as you get a good price for it and as long as they can continue watching them in a good league, the fans actually support um, the selling of players and reinvesting the dollars, um, almost like they're running their own you know, fantasy soccer team. Um, and that part was a bit of a surprise. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of split loyalties. Can I just... Simon, were you saying? It's Simon here. Yeah, I was, because I'm going to speak as a, as a fan of a, a long-standing fan of uh, soccer here. And what's interesting is we're entirely used to this, our players going off to represent uh, other countries. In fact, my team, the team that I support, Leeds United, um, we're very proud almost that eight of our first team went off to represent their countries on, on the games that were played last week. It's almost a, a, a badge of recognition for our team that has just been promoted to the Premier League that we have so many players uh, that have now been selected for their national team. Um, the, the, the corollary of that, and I, I, I can't remember if Larry mentioned that, is um, quite often those players will come back from their national sides injured. So we, uh, we've actually oh. lost two of our players. One played for Scotland and uh, our new signing, actually, one of our new defensive signings went off and played for Spain and they've come back injured and won't be available to us for three to four weeks. Now, they could have got injured playing for the club. It seems the fans, I think, soon get very tired of their teams, of their players going off to national teams and coming back injured. Um, and that is, a, it's a continual tension between clubs and their national teams. And it's a much, much bigger issue, I think, in soccer than it is in my sport, rugby league, uh, or in, uh, or in the, the rugby union, the other games where you know, players go off to their national teams on a regular basis. Who bears basis. that financial risk of that injury? Is it you, so the, the, uh, the um, team owner, or the international no, the, team? Uh, no, no, the national team, well, it depends on each nation. I used to work for the English Football Association, and we were required by our clubs to put in place an insurance scheme at our cost, which would cover uh, injuries incurred by their players whilst on their international duty. Not every national team has that same uh, arrangement, and therefore the, the liability does fall back on the clubs, particularly with teams in South America and Eastern Europe. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you're absolutely right, and that tension does exist. I think the other side of that, though, is that in our case, for example, we have a – and, of course, MLS is not the EPL, and I know Leeds just got promoted, so congrats on that. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not the uh, EPL, and so we have a player who's 20 years old who plays for the Uruguayan national team as a striker. They're number six in the world. Uh, he's a starter, believe it or not, and he plays with Luis Suarez and Cavani, and our fans love watching him, and frankly, if he goes – and he plays well and he doesn't get injured, his market value actually goes up. So it's a real trade-off as a club. The club definitely takes the injury risk, and the club definitely takes sometimes the wrath of the fan if they miss games or whatever. 
but the club can also effectively put their player in the window, the shop window, and if they play well, it can enhance their value. So um, it's tricky. I think it really helps that I'm a diehard soccer fan because as a, as a club, we, we definitely want our players to go to national team duty. It's all part of the narrative. It's all part of the fun. It's all part of the development. Um, but not everybody looks at it that way. All right, this is the point of the show where we go to our uh, concluding remarks. Um, I ask each speaker to end with something that they're optimistic about. Um, Larry Burke, you were just chatting. What, what are you most optimistic about in your space? Well, I mentioned it earlier. I'm really most, we're literally entering the golden age of uh, American soccer player. I mean, the idea that we would have players playing for Barcelona and Juventus and those sort of teams at those young ages that was just not considered a few years ago. So between that, between the fact that uh, hopefully COVID will see a vaccine, we have an outdoor, outdoor stadiums, um, and there's no relegation in MLS, unlike all these other leagues, and therefore we can uh, hopefully stay standing while we're waiting for the vaccine. I'm optimistic that the golden age of American soccer is coming, and perhaps we'll compete for a World Cup someday soon. Great. Dan Orla, what are you optimistic about? Uh... I'm optimistic about the you know where the U.S. is going with sports gaming. The reality is millennials love to go in individual players. Uh, LeBron is he a Cavalier? Is he a Laker? Is the Heat? They love LeBron and they follow him. And I think that's true across the board as people engage with new and more exciting forms of technology. It'll become more immersive, more prevalent, and the growth trajectory is a multi-year trajectory. So, you know, COVID's really had an strangely positive impact on the space in the sense that where states now need aggressively to look at creating new revenue offerings, um, and where people need to rediscover that sense of community, that sense of identity, their, their brand awareness, to understand that the content is the player. And the integration of that becomes what the team is. 80% of what the team handicap is player-based. You know, that's going to be exciting stuff and create a lot of new products, a lot of new services, and create a lot of value. Dan, thank you very much. Um, Simon Johnson, what are you excited about? Or I should say optimistic about well, as I said in my remarks, I think we've ended up having to change our game, um, and that's had the effect of speeding it up and um, making it a bit more exciting. I think that uh, the, other, the other thing that I didn't talk about is that we have managed to, I think, get ourselves onto the, onto the map as a sport a little bit more. Um, we were the first sport to be given a, a specific and bespoke government support uh, when the lockdown first hit. And actually, that's because I think people realize the importance of rugby league to the northern part of England and the communities that we serve. If we can build on that and we can get back to bringing spectators into our stadiums, which I hope will be in April, then when we come to our World Cup in 2021, I hope that will be a real chance to build rugby league. So in the answer to your question, what am I most excited about? I think we might by virtue of this disruption, has set up a situation where our World Cup could, if we can get fans back in our stadium, be more successful than it would have been otherwise. Thank you. Aaron Luber, what are you optimistic about? Uh, I'll say this half-jokingly, but I'm optimistic that I wasn't the only one on the call talking about immersive computing. 
it's it's wonderful <laughs> to hear uh, in travel and sports. Uh, I mean, you've heard it uh, all, all over the conversation today. Uh, you see the advances that are happening in the technology right now. It's happening in each of these verticals. I talked about some. The other speakers talked about theirs. And this is real in that, uh, and I talked about the, 10 years or the past 10 years of mobile and this new next uh, next decade that's going to be upon us right now, it, it, it will take the same time or similar time frames. It's accelerating massively right now, as we've heard. But, um, you know, over this past next, next 10 years, businesses that are, are, are understanding this and getting into this now are the same business that, that understood and got into it early when, when uh, mobile made a big shift. And so I'm truly optimistic and excited for, for what's to come. Thank you. Gordon Hall. Well, I think the resourcefulness and empathy of the cruise category will get them through this. I think I hinted at this, you know, planning for this COVID crisis, no one could have planned for it. But if you look at what happened, like the Diamond Princess crew, you know, they, were, they stepped up, whether it was finding ways to keep guests entertained or trying to figure out how to make and deliver thousands of meals through room service. And then you had even guests. I didn't mention this. A lot of guests stepped up. They set up private Facebook groups so they could support each other. A honeymoon couple, you know, like Tyler and Rachel Torres in particular, who I got to know, they actually enlisted the Reddit followers to deliver multiple care packages to their fellow passengers. Wow. And then, of course, I think I've, I've, I said enough about the, the I haven't said enough about the Prince's volunteers. They work with the military to to help overcome obstacles such as getting cell phones, disinfectant wipes, and even hard to get toilet paper, which we all remember, to the military bases, which were needed because they even ran out. So I think that this resourcefulness and this empathy what I observe firsthand is what I think is going to get so many different categories, including the cruise industry, through this pandemic. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's going to make everybody stronger and get through this to make it a safer, better way to travel. Thank you. Greg Wolf, what do you, what do you like to survive from your experience with ancient cities? I think, I think what I'm optimistic about is that when we look at pandemics in the past, we find we've always come through the, there are many individual tragedies along the way, but uh, as a species, we've, we're really good at this. We, we've, we've weathered many different kind of pandemics in the past. We'll weather this one as well. And even though close up, it looks terrifying. You know, we'll step back a little bit. And it's like it, it will be an episode, a, a bad one, but just an episode. That is reassuring. Uh, my co-host, Mitch Feynman, do you have a last word? Uh, well, you know, my wife will tell you I'm not an optimistic person, but I actually see <laughs> a lot of upside from this. I think we have all learned that, you know, spending more time with our family, spending time at home, you know, cooking more, you know, I think it's just brought a certain simplicity to life that, you know, maybe we were all missing and sort of can help return as a bit more than the running around we all seem to be doing before, and in hindsight, not quite sure why we were doing it. All right. With that, I'm going to give a plug alert. Um, next week, um, we have lined up a bunch of speakers on a variety of topics. Um, Tim Denier is going to talk about what's new in freight and logistics, a little industry analysis. Uh, Robert Nake will talk about cybersecurity. Uh, Joshua Schiffer will talk about what's new with COVID. And then two friends of mine, Wendy Ferber and Howie Givner, will talk about the role of how Zoom and, virt uh, and the virtual experience is going to change um, corporate events and conventions. 
with that, that wraps up today's episode of What Happens Next. I'd like to thank our speakers for their participation and, of course, our listeners for listening in. Uh, that's it. You may disengage uh, and drop off. Thank you so much again, and thanks to Mitch and all my speakers. Bye-bye. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. You're very welcome, Thank Greg. You. Bye, sir. Good day.